Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. And I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution and my two great collaborators on this fine Friday morning, Phil Duffy, constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom as he defends the God-given right to keep and bear arms. And by the way, Mike has a great show just before ours on Friday morning, 7 a.m., Mike G. in the morning, The Law Matters. So definitely get over there and check that out. Uh, also, check out our podcast. If you go to the website for WFYL, it's 1180WFYL.com. Click podcast, and we're all the way down to the bottom of the list. We the people, the Constitution matters. Well, we're in the midst of a series right now looking at the decent dozen. Actually, it's going to be a baker's dozen now, but the decent dozen Supreme Court cases. That's where the Supreme Court got it right, constitutionally speaking. We know that there's plenty of examples where they got it wrong. We did that series before, the dirty dozen. But uh, the decent dozen, we're looking at these cases, and they're not all perfect. One we're going to examine today has some flaws in it, but they came out with a proper result. Uh, but when we look at the flaws, I think it teaches us also that the problems in our constitutional republic have to do with departures from the standard that have been longstanding. I mean, it's not just the past 10 years or 20 or 30 or 50. You know, some of these go back to almost 100 years that we have gone off course. And the only way, of course, to restore that is that we, the people, know that standard. That's why we, we have this class uh, every week. We know the standard. And if we know the standard, then we can hold elected officials accountable to that standard. And therefore, we can elect those who will uphold the standard and really fire those who will not stick with the standard of our Constitution. Well, this morning, we're going to examine the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Rights uh, Civil Rights Commission. Here's the you know, a, a cake in your face, kind of let them eat cake case uh, that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on Master Masterpiece Cake Shop? Well, this is the background of the case as described at Cornell's Legal Information Institute. Masterpiece Cake Shop Limited is a Colorado bakery owned and operated by Jack Phillips, an expert baker and devout Christian. In 2012, he told a same-sex couple that he would not create a cake for their wedding celebration because of his religious opposition to same-sex marriages, marriages that Colorado did not then recognize, but that he would sell them other baked goods, for example, birthday cakes. The couple filed a charge with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission pursuant to the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, uh, CADA, which prohibits, as relevant here, discrimination based on sexual orientation in a place of business engaged in any sales to the public and any place offering services to the public. Under CADA's administrative review system, the Colorado Civil Rights Division first found probable cause for violation and referred the case to the commission. The commission then referred the case for a formal hearing before a state administrative law judge, uh, ALJ, who rule, ruled in the couple's favor. In so doing, the administrative law judge rejected Phillips' First Amendment claims that requiring him to create a cake for a same-sex wedding would violate his right to free speech by compelling him to exercise his artistic talents to express a message with which he disagreed and would violate his right to the free exercise of religion. Both the Commission and the Colorado Court of Appeals affirmed. As with Burwell versus Hobby Lobby previously reviewed, 
This demonstrates the fragility of constitutional arguments based upon the First uh, Amendment. The First Amendment, as written, only constrains Congress from passing laws that inhibit the free exercise of religion, free speech, free press, assembly, and petition. It is true that the incorporation principle in the 14th Amendment has often been used in the past to stretch the application of this amendment beyond Congress, but surely there is a more direct argument that is less subject to judicial interpretation. The answer is in Article 1, Section 10, which states, No state shall pass any law impairing the obligations of contracts. The counter to that line of argument is the idea that the applicable law existed prior to the discussions between the gay couple and Jack Phillips, and that Jack Phillips was refusing to comply with the law. On the face of the map, that would be correct if the law itself were legitimate. But the key element in the concept of contract is the absence of coercion. In this case, Colorado's state law was being used to coerce tra a transaction between the two parties. In that sense, the Colorado law was impairing the obligations of contract in that it was coercing one of the two parties to the contract to bake a cake. Of course, the issue seems to change if the gay couple had simply sought to purchase a cake. There's no indication that Jack Phillips assumed the couple was gay and wished to discriminate against them. It was when the two People announced they were gay, were being married, and wished to have Jack Phillips employ his artistic skills to create a design on the cake celebrating the union. That the trouble arose. Note that the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act was based upon a limitation concerning where the transaction must occur. Place of business engaged in any sales to the public and any place offering services to the public. Let's assume that next door to Jack Phillips' bakery was an art, artist's studio called Art on Demand. Art on Demand's appeal is that anybody could walk in and ask that an individualized painting be made for a price to be negotiated between the parties. If the same gay couple had walked in and asked the proprietor to cre create a picture of their wedding, and the painter had refused, based upon what he stated were his religious reservations, would the artist have been charged with violating uh, Colorado's anti-discrimination law? Somehow, the law seems less applicable. Now let's assume that the gay couple have heard of a local music composer who has no official place of business and has, for practical purposes, essentially used his home as a place for conducting business. The composer likewise refuses to write the melody, expressing he is against gay marriage. Should the composer be faced with a fine and or imprisonment? We may be tempted to discern differences among these three situations. Fundamentally, in terms of a contract, there are no differences. The concept of contract location is artificial, used to determine which jurisdiction should prevail in the event a party protests that the contract has not been properly executed. Today, a contract can be established between two parties who are most distant from each other on Earth, one on the high seas of the Atlantic and the other on the high seas of the Pacific. But no one country has jurisdiction over international uh, waters. If transaction location is artificial, what is the essence of a contract? Customarily, a minimum of four conditions must exist. One, absence of fraud. Two, absence of coercion. Three, quid pro quo or something given or received for something else. And four, a meeting of the minds. The Legal Information Institute provides this definition of a meeting of the minds. Actual assent by both parties to the formation of a contract, including agreement on the same terms, conditions, and subject matter. 
a reasonable argument may be made that the right to contract is a matter of natural law and is essential for human prosperity. Then the state of Colorado was insisting it had the power to void natural law. Let's look at the state discrimination bans and the limits of law. Discrimination is a very broad term. Merriam-Webster suggests the difficulty in defining a term with the uh, with four different definitions. 1a, prejudiced or prejudicial outlook, action or treatment, for example, racial discrimination. 1b, the act, practice, or an instance of discriminating categorically rather than individually. 2, the quality or power of finely distinguishing, for example, the film viewed by those with discrimination. 3a, the act of making or perceiving a difference, the act of discriminating. Not all discrimination is bad. We should admire the person who can discriminate between good and evil. Discriminating categorically instead of individually can be beneficial when it is not practical to discriminate individually. We might not wish to interview every candidate for the job of treasurer in a firm when the pool of candidates contains people who have been convicted of stealing. Our greatest concern is with the first definition, particularly in the area of racial, gender, and sexual orientation. The problem is how to detect unjust discrimination. We can't read others' minds, and so we tend to fall back on questionable methods, such as correlation, which is very unscientific. In doing so, we tend to make the assumption that a person is guilty until proven innocent, hardly an attribute of justice. This was not the basis of the charge made against Jack Phillips by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Phillips had made his feelings about gay marriage known to the gay couple and did not deny that in subsequent judicial pro uh, proceedings. But Phillips had not harmed the, the couple in the judicial sense. Indeed, he offered to refer the couple to other bakeries that might be willing to bake the cake they, wa they wanted. Masterpiece Cake Shop Limited versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission is a good case to consider the limits of law in a healthy, non-contentious society. If violation of the law can be brought down to every human interaction in which one party claims its feelings have been hurt, that society rapidly disintegrates into chaos and fear. Human liberty would not be possible. We need to ponder whether the claimant's civil rights were truly violated and whether Masterpiece Cake Shop was a matter that should have, uh, should have involved the judicial system. Underlying the case is the assumption of the validity of the so-called gay rights. Anybody who has spent any time viewing the nightly news on television has had the concept drummed into that person. The problem with the concept is that rights should be universal, to be enjoyed by all without penalty to other groups. But society has already acknowledged that same-sex partners should not be fined and incarcerated for sexual activity that would be allowed to heterosexual couples. So gay rights really assumes privileges that extend beyond the rights that should be enjoyed by all individuals. One wonders if the circumstances had been different in this case. If a heterosexual couple had asked a gay baker to create a cake that was decorated with the claim, homosexuality is sin, would the baker in this case be charged by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission with discrimination? Not likely. The difference between the gay couple and Jack Phillips could have been resolved easily if the gay couple had bought the cake they were seeking from another baker. They also could have warned their friends of the unwillingness of Masterpiece Cake Shop to meet the gay couple's wish. Even if others did not join the boycott of Masterpiece Bakery, Jay Phillips would have lost the profit 
on that cake, a trade-off he was willing to make. Granted that wedding cakes are an expensive item, particularly if the number of wedding guests are large, let's also assume that Jack Phillips had required a reputation, um, had a acquired a reputation for creating exceptional designs at a reasonable price. Yet the gay couple's objective loss or harm in having to buy their wedding cake from another baker cannot be great. Of course, a lot is made of the loss of self-image in these situations, but most of us are exposed to a loss of self-image whenever others do not live up to their uh, expectations. It is one thing for the courts to be involved in the claims of another individual involved in a car accident in which the claimant has been disabled through no fault of the claimant. But a refusal to sell a wedding cake that rises to the ultimate court of justice in the United States requires us to question the real motivation behind this legal action. For a moment, let's get off the main path of analyzing this case to consider the concept of moral hazard, which applies in the financial world and particularly the world of insurance. The Corporate Finance Institute website has this definition. Moral hazard refers to the situation that arises when an individual has the chance to take advantage of a financial deal or situation, knowing that all the risks and fallout will land on another party. It means that one party is open to the option and therefore the temptation of taking advantage of another party. Replace the term financial deal with legal situation and you see that the concept of moral hazard fits perfectly to Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado. Masterpiece Cake Shop is Jack Phillips, but the gay couple is not even named in the suit. Instead of the gay couple being equally at risk in a legal action, which would have been the situation before Colorado's anti-discrimination, once the gay couple had convinced the Colorado Civil Rights Division that there was probable cause, the legal battle was between the entire state of Colorado government versus Jack Phillips. This is just one example in which the legitimate purpose of law is distorted to give special interests an advantage over their victims. Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado did not assess the real harm that Jack Phillips had allegedly caused the gay couple, which at most would uh, be considered hurt feelings. It was just another example of a test case designed to promote so-called gay rights. Okay, the envelope, please. Now that we understand the nature of this case, Let's see how the justices of the Supreme Court of the United States saw it, according to Cornell's Legal Information Institute syllabus of the case. Initially, the court acknowledged the uh, challenge it faced. The case presents difficult questions as to the proper reconciliation of at least two principles. The first is the authority of a state and its governmental entities to protect the rights and dignity of gay persons who are or wish to be married, but who face discrimination when they seek goods or services. The second is the right of all persons to exercise fundamental freedoms under the First Amendment, as applied to the states through the 14th Amendment. Of course, if the First Amendment had been written appropriately in 1791, there would be no need to rely on the 14th Amendment and the questionable reliance on the incorporation interpretation. The opinion continues. One of the difficulties in this case is that the parties disagree as to the extent of the baker's refusal to provide service. If a baker's refusal, uh, if the baker refused to design a special cake with words or images celebrating the marriage, for instance, a cake showing words with religious meaning, that might be different from a refusal to sell any cake at all. In defining whether a baker's creation can be protected, these details might make a difference. However, 
whatever the confluence of speech and free exercise principles might be in some cases. The Colorado Civil Rights Commission's consideration of this case was inconsistent with the state's obligation of religious neutrality. The court then concluded, still the delicate question of when the free exercise of his religion must yield to an otherwise valid exercise of state power needed to be determined in an adjudication in which religious hostility on the part of the state itself would not be a factor in the balance uh, the state sought to reach. That requirement, however, was not met here. When the Colorado Civil Rights Commission considered the case, it did not do so with the religious neutrality that the Constitution requires. Given all of these considerations, it is proper to hold that whatever the outcome of some future controversy involving facts similar to these, the Commission's actions here violated the free exercise clause, and its order must be set aside. And so the case was settled, 7-2. to two. Justices Ginsburg and uh, Sotomayor uh, dissenting. On the basis of a combination of the First Amendment right to free speech, as implemented through incorporation of the 14th Amendment right to due process that also enabled the First Amendment's free exercise of religion clause. In mentioning it is proper to hold that whatever the outcome of some future controversy involving facts similar to these, the court was suggesting that the case did not demonstrate broad precedence. Notice the complexity of the constitutional laws cited in the opinion and how positive or statute law was used to create moral hazard. If the intent of Article 1, Section 10, preventing a state's impairment of contracts, had been applied, this case would not even have reached the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Consider also the victory of liberty that would have represented. Mm, amen. And, you know, what's fascinating is uh, you propose the theoretical thing of what if, you know, uh, someone came in and one of the... Uh, uh, a, a sodomite to produce a cake, a sodomite baker to produce a cake that said had a Christian mes message on it that he disagreed with. Well, it's not theoretical. Uh, there's a fellow who's involved in a, a generation ministry, which is a generations ministries there in Colorado. And he actually went into a baker there in Colorado that he knew was a devoted sodomite. And he requested that the, the bakery there would produce a cake that would have the quotation from Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22 on that cake. In, in other words, quoting this verse in full, and the verse says this, this is Leviticus 18, 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. <laughs> Pretty clear. And he wanted the full quote of that, that on the cake. And this sodomite baker refused to produce that cake. And so this individual went and took that information and took uh, their request and the refusal of this request. They took it directly to that same group, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And guess what? The Colorado Civil Rights Commission refused to take up this case of discrimination against a Christian wanting a Christian message to be put on a cake that they wanted to use to celebrate what the Word of God says about the evil abomination of sodomy. So wait a minute, there's two standards of justice going on here, because if it could go one way, it certainly should go the other way. Consider the other uh, uh, really crazy part of this. As you said, Phil, the law in the state of Colorado did not permit 
same-sex marriages, what I would really prefer to call sodomite unmarriages, because they're not marriage. God's defined marriage. You can't redefine marriage. And two men together do not constitute a marriage. Don't care how much ink a bunch of people spill on paper, whether it's legislature or the judges. No, no amount of ink spilled on paper can change the law of the universe that marriage is between a man and a woman, period. So, but in Colorado, it was not legal for this quote-unquote couple to actually get married at the time they made the initial uh, request there of, of Jack Phillips. So they had no legal grounds to even, I think, sue for uh, discrimination. There was no discrimination. Jack Phillips was simply, you know, not recognizing what they wanted to do, which what they wanted to do was illegal. It'd be like, you know, someone coming in that, uh, uh, you know, wants to celebrate a murder. Let's let's say that, you know, you're part of the mafia and you know, you, you want to come in and, and have a cake that celebrates the accomplishments of your favorite hitman for, for your, your, your mafia group. Ah, he's killed 50 people, and here we're going to celebrate. We're going to list all 50 people. At, you know, hey, wait a minute. You're celebrating a crime, something that's not legitimate, something that's not legal in our state. And so if the baker refuses to bake such a cake, there should be no punishment of him whatsoever. So they can't even say that he was discriminating because he would not participate. As he said, he would not participate. It was against his religious belief, against his biblical uh, standard to participate in a sodomite unmarriage pagan ceremony, which is what I think those things are. They're pagan ceremonies. And you say, where do you get the idea that they're pagan ceremonies? Because the first guy that attempted this was not here in the United States, was not even in some of the European countries, Sweden and other countries that have this sodomite unmarriage. The first guy that attempted this was Nero. Remember that evil dictator in Rome, the one who burned Rome, bartered Rome down and blamed it on the Christians so he could build his elaborate palace? Well, yeah, Nero. Nero wanted to marry this little boy uh, that, uh, you know, he was having that kind of a relationship as a pedophile with this little boy. And, and yeah, he, he conducted this ceremony, a pagan ceremony, which included the, you know, payons to his idols that, that uh, he worshipped and so on. So Nero, we could call this Neronian idea of marriage. <laughs> so it has a long history, this pagan idea. Uh, but th there's nothing in the law at the time that this took place. So the Colorado Civil Rights Commission should have been disciplined for doing this. And by the way, they were not uh, severely enough disciplined by the Supreme Court of the United States because they proceeded to persecute Jack Phillips again and again and again. He's been dragged into court again and again with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, not over exactly the same set of facts, but the, the, the next case was over uh, a transgender individual. That is a person who had a, we could say perhaps is a mental illness, a man believing he's a woman and wants to transition and cut off body parts and that kind of thing so he could become a woman and then wanting to have a celebration of coming out as a woman or whatever and, and have this cake that would celebrate his transgender transition to, you know, this, whatever it is. And Jack Phillips said, again, this is uh, not in line with my biblical beliefs. And uh, here's here's uh, phone numbers to a bunch of bakers that would be probably glad to, to do that and serve your, your event. But I, as a Christian, cannot. And so the, the, the question, uh, the good part of what the Supreme Court here decided is they decided that it is an issue of religious uh, freedom. It is an issue of being able to freely follow the Lord Jesus Christ, follow the word of God, and not be forced to do something against your conscience. So that's the right part of, of their decision, and we applaud uh, that, that portion of it. The problem of this all, like you, you've said, Phil, is really it, it should have been looked at 
under Article 1, Section 10, that no state can impair the obligation of contract. And puzzling to me, as well as to you, it sounds like as to why they didn't go that route. They went the more uh, traditional route, it appears, of say, okay, Article 14th incorporate, uh, 14th Amendment incorporates all of the First Amendment, and therefore the state must abide by the First Amendment, and this is a violation of the First Amendment, and therefore, you know, we rule on that. They, they never touched the Article 1, Section 10 uh, argument that an obligation of contract, you cannot, as you rightly point out, coerce someone into a contract that they're not willing to be involved with. In fact, our founders uh, of our our Constitutional Republic, they made it very clear that they viewed uh, the obligations of contract and the freedom to enter into a contract without coercion. They viewed that as a sacred right, one of the most sacred rights. Because if you don't have the liberty to choose who you contract with and what you, con what are you? You're a slave. That's right. A slave is one who does not have the freedom to choose what it's going to do with its labor. He's going to be coerced to serve whoever is in control. And in this case, uh, sodomites appear to have, in Colorado at least, been given this power of enslaving Jack Phillips and forcing Jack Phillips to do whatever they want him to do, to enter into a labor contract that he does not want to enter into. There's no freedom of contract in that when there's coercion. And so one of the essential uh, ideas of, of, of liberty, according to our founders, was this freedom of contract. Uh, otherwise, you're nothing but a slave. In this case, uh, being enslaved by the state of Colorado and forced to serve people in a way that you that violates your conscience. So I agree that really the, the issue should have been on the Article 1, Section 10 that uh, uh, forbids states from uh, uh, really violating the, the freedom to contract. So why did they go the other route? Well, as you rightly pointed out, they couldn't actually, from the text of the Constitution, as it was written, the Bill of Rights, First Amendment, they couldn't actually say that the First Amendment applies to Colorado because the very first word of the First Amendment is Congress shall not. So it, it restricted Congress. It did not restrict the state of Colorado. And so we've talked about this before on the show, the false incorporation doctrine saying the 14th Amendment incorporated the First Amendment against the states. That's false. And we know that's false because just a little history lesson again, if you check out the Blaine Amendment, an attempt to create an additional amendment to our Constitution that would have taken the exact wording of the First Amendment, but replacing the word Congress with the word state, no state. Uh, shall make uh, establishment of religion or prohibit the free exercise thereof and so on. But that failed. That never passed. It didn't become part of our Constitution. Therefore, seven years after the ratification of the 14th, they were wrestling with the Blaine Amendment. They decided to pass it through Congress and send it on to the states, but it failed at the state level to, uh, to gain the number, the three-quarters state required to actually amend the Constitution. So it never became part of our Constitution, which means the people who, who uh, ratified and tried to push through to the states, the Blaine Amendment recognized that the 14th Amendment did nothing to incorporate the First Amendment against the states. But what we have, of course, is a Supreme Court that thinks it's above the law, and the Supreme Court ultimately decided that, oh, we know that the states rejected the Blaine Amendment, but we're going to impose the Blaine Amendment anyway, and therefore incorporate the First Amendment against all the states. So we, we know that history and that background. And so that's why I think they went that route because they could clearly say, hey, this guy's religious liberty has been violated by the state of Colorado. Sad thing to me is that this cost uh, Jack Phillips a great deal of not just hassle and, and, and persecution and money that was involved, 
but it didn't end his persecution. Last I heard, there was another case that was being brought against him uh, by the Colorado, uh, you know, this, this Colorado commission, supposedly civil rights. Well, wait a minute. They're not allowing Jack uh, Phillips to have even the basic civil rights. Instead, it's a commission to give special rights to sodomites. That's what it's about. We're going to give sodomites special privileges above the rest of the citizens. In a sense, we're going to say that those who identify as sodomites get a title of nobility. Because in the old days, back in England, if you had a title of nobility, you had privileges that the rest of the citizens of the society around you did not have. You got special privileges. Maybe you got tax exemption from uh, certain taxes that everybody else had to pay, but you didn't because you had this title of nobility and you could pass this title of nobility on to your sons and daughters. And so on. anyway, we rejected that whole idea of the title of nobility because our Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal. Well, clearly what the Civil Rights uh, Commission of Colorado is doing is saying, no, 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 some people are more equal than others. And if you happen to be involved in the abomination of sodomy and you publicly identify as a sodomite, somehow your rights are above those of other people. And you can go in and enslave Jack Phillips and force him to do a service to you that he does not freely choose to engage in. And you can find him and you could drag him through the entire court system and he'll have to fight the way all the way up to the Supreme Court because he went through all the levels, as you, as you said, Phil, he went through all the levels of Colorado's legal system. And at every level, he was judged to be in the wrong and the sodomites were in the right. And he was punished and uh, had to go up to the next level until he ultimately had to appeal to the Supreme Court. But this is one of those things that Article 1, Section 10 really does deal with this constitutionally. But their interpretation of the First Amendment and their application of the incorporation doctrine really fails. So it, it, this is one of those two-edged sword cases. They came to the right conclusion, but really with wrong constitutional thinking uh, about how to apply uh, the Constitution to this particular situation. The bigger issue really is this, the freedom to contract. Do we have the freedom to contract? And the answer to that is our founders said, yes, that's a sacred right. But our states and our federal government have basically said, no, every single contract you enter into, the government becomes a third party to that contract. And the government puts stipulations on that contract, requirements, this and that. And the other thing, in this case of Jack Phillips, the state of Colorado saying, hey, you do not have the freedom to choose not to enter into a contract with uh, producing a, 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 a wedding cake for a sodomite unmarriage ceremony, a pagan ceremony. You don't have the freedom to do that. We have removed that freedom when we took control of the contracts that take place in the state of uh, Colorado. Well, we need to reject that. And we need to appeal to our legislators to undo every bit of those violations of our God-given right to freely enter contracts and to make those decisions based upon our set of moral values and, and let the chips fall where they may. If the government gets out of the business of, of running everybody's contracts and being a third party to every contract, I contend we will have a better economy. I contend we will preserve our liberty, which is what the purpose of our constitutional republic is supposed to be, uh, that we have rights given to us by God and the whole purpose of government is to protect those God-given rights, which reminds me, as I quoted uh, Leviticus 18.22, there is no such thing as gay rights. And let me repeat that because that may sound very strange in today's times. There is no such thing as gay rights. Sodomites do not have any rights to commit sodomy because our rights come from God. Therefore, God gets to say what's right and what's wrong, and you never have the right to do that which is wrong. 
you never have the right to murder. I'd like to do it, but no, 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 you don't have a right to murder. It's a crime. You'd never have a right to steal. That's a crime. You never have a right to commit sodomy. That's a crime. The creator has established that standard. And by his standard, the practice of sodomy is not a right. So we've got the whole thing wrong from the very get-go with this whole idea. We've been lied to and sold a, 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 a lie that this idea that there's special rights for sodomites. There are not. They have all the rights that the rest of us have, but they have no special rights because our rights come from... Well, Mike, what are your thoughts here on the Master Key, Masterpiece uh, Big Shop? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. You know, I took a little bit of a different look at this case. Um, there's a constitutional law professor, an attorney named Erwin Chemerinsky, and I listened to a number of his lectures during law school and while preparing for the bar. I will say I genuinely like Chemerinsky, although it's pretty clear that we're on opposite ends of the political spectrum. He's no doubt an incredibly intelligent man. I found his lectures to be incredibly helpful. He explains things in a way that's very easy to understand. He's got a great memory, uh, but I like to take a look at his stuff because of knowing the fact that he's on the opposite side of the political spectrum to, to hear the arguments that come up. And I bring him up in this case particularly because he wrote an article criticizing the decision in Masterpiece Cake Shop called Not a Masterpiece. His opening point was that all anti-discrimination statutes, quote, pose a tension between equality and liberty. Any law that prohibits discrimination denies the freedom to choose who to serve or to hire. Congress and the courts both deemed ending discrimination to be more important than protecting the right to discriminate, but that was exactly the issue in Masterpiece Cake Shop. Is a business's freedom to choose its customers more important than the government interest in stopping sexual discrimination? The Supreme Court did not answer this question, but instead decided the, the case on narrower grounds by concluding that members of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission expressed impermissible, impermissible hostility to religion, end quote. Now, in reaching the decision regarding the hostility towards religion, Chemerinsky cited two statements. The first was, quote, Phillips can believe what he wants to believe, but cannot act on his religious beliefs if he decides to do business in the state, end quote. The second quote was, freedom of religion and religion has been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, whether it be slavery, whether it be the Holocaust, whether it be, I mean, we... We can list hundreds of situations where freedom of religion has been used to justify discrimination. And to me, it is one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use to use their religious religion to hurt others. And now Chemerinsky points out that, quote, because the courts found that members of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had expressed hostility to religion, it concluded that there was a violation of the Establishment Clause without the need to reach the questions that had been briefed and argued concerning whether it would violate First Amendment speech or religion clauses to hold Phillips liable for his refusal to design and bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. Chemerinsky further notes that Justice Clarence Thomas wrote in an opinion, joined by Justice Gorsuch, and they wrote that forcing the baker to bake the cake would be, quote, impermissible compelled speech. And Thomas explained, forcing Phillips to make custom wedding cakes for same-sex marriages requires him to, at the very least, acknowledge that same-sex weddings are weddings and suggest that they should be celebrated, the precise message he believes his faith forbids. The First Amendment prohibits Colorado from requiring Phillips to bear witness to these facts or to affirm a belief with which he disagrees, end quote. Chemerinsky's take was, 
quote, I question whether baking a cake should be regarded as expressive activity and whether a company can make such a speech claim. But if so, then almost any kind of work can be seen as a form of expression. If baking a cake is speech, then so is cooking food, or as in other cases that have arisen taking pictures or making floral arrangements, any business could refuse to serve gay weddings, or for that matter, anyone, by claiming that the anti-discrimination law constitutes impermissible compelled speech, end quote. Now, I don't think that's entirely correct from my perspective. I like that Phil, along these lines, tried to compare this to other expressive activities. I find flaws with Chemerinsky's views in that not every service is expressive the way a cake shop is. These cakes need to be decorated, and you don't decorate plain old food or put messages on plain old food. I can say that as an attorney, my job requires a great deal of creativity, but I'm not decorating anything anytime soon. This particular case with the cake shop is the wrong profession to be making that kind of broad argument. Now, Pastor Whitney brought up the example with the, of the cake with Leviticus. Uh, and I'm not diminishing the word of God or saying that it isn't true, but the truth can sometimes be presented in a way that has questionable motivation. I feel funny talking about this when we've been talking about cake for 30 minutes. But suppose that any, someone were extremely overweight, and that's a fact, the guy's 400 pounds. And my message was, you are fat, you are morbidly obese, you're probably going to fall over and die of a heart attack, you'll probably get diabetes, they're going to have to chop off your foot and stuff, you probably get out of breath and sweaty and extremely stinky every time you walk up a flight of steps. And that message may very well be true, but the way I presented it has questionable motivations in the eyes of and my guess would be that when that gentleman uh, went to the commission, uh, they, he was dismissed based on that, even if it weren't s said out loud. I, I, if I had to place a bet on why that case didn't go his way, the conclusion was, hey, this guy's being a jerk. He's just being plain rude. Now, I will say that I'm not sure the scenario is entirely analogous, though. I like to say that I like to see that we don't get too wrapped up in results of cases uh, but rather focus more on the reasoning. For example, my brother-in-law is Catholic, and as a result, my goddaughter is going to have her first communion soon. One of my good friends from the martial arts days is a devout Muslim, and he's also a decorated chef. He's not a baker, but suppose he was. And I walked into Ali's bake shop, and I asked that he make me a cake for my goddaughter's first communion. I wouldn't be surprised if he said, listen, it's against my religion. And I suspect that the people who oppose the cake shop decision and masterpiece would, wouldn't see that as unfair. Frankly, I personally wouldn't see it as unfair. Uh, but we have to take a look at these things from multiple different angles and focus more on the reasoning rather than the facts themselves. Oh, thank you, Mike. And I, I appreciate that because I know that uh, when these commissions are established, uh, the Human Rights Civil, Civil Rights Commission, the the people who populate these commissions are advocates for sodomy, and they're chosen because of that. They're qualified based upon that, and so obviously they're going to have a bias. Uh, they're not fair in, in how they're dealing with this. Otherwise, the masterpiece uh, cake shop uh, case never would have gone forward. But I guess it really begs, for, in my view, begs the bigger question: Do we have any liberty left? I talk to people who uh, operate their own businesses, and you know folks in my church who do that, and, and just the enormity of all the regulations required by the state government and the county government and the federal government, and they're into every part of our life. And we look at the founders of our country, and they, they hated that because they saw 
that when the government, in that case, King George III's government, got involved in their business, even if it was only a small involvement, saying requiring uh, the Boston, in the the case of Boston, you guys are going to have to buy this tea. We're only going to let you buy this tea. You cannot have any other tea. This tea that's coming into the harbor has to go into your teapots and you have no option. You cannot get any other tea than the tea that we force you to buy. They said, this is, this is a cause for a revolution. <laughs> this is a cause for overthrowing a wicked government that will not respect our God-given rights. I don't know. What, what do you think? There are so many different regulations. And I'm not talking just in terms of discrimination or anything like that. Uh, but when you see how much the government is involved in running a business, it's really why we've seen the majority of small businesses squeezed out in this country. And people don't realize that the problem is when you squeeze out the small businesses, uh, the the country is primarily run by a major corporation. And the same people who advocate for all the different regulations that have squeezed out the small businesses, the local businesses, are the same ones who complain that the big corporations have too much control. It's really counterintuitive. And then once they get that control, if they, they put their employees in, in a bad situation and the employees get frustrated, they get mad and uh, this is how socialism starts uh, because they've squeezed out the, the small businesses, the, the local family-owned businesses, the corporations have all the control, the corporations uh, become the evil one as a result, and therefore uh, the people have nobody to blame but themselves because they've put themselves in this situation. Uh, but what they do is they, they turn towards socialism, and, and we've seen this over and over. And so uh, that, that's why we're seeing in this country uh, the same people who do not like the corporations say that we should go towards socialism. And really, the reason why it happens that way is because all these regulations serve as sort of a silent tax. I'm not, not saying that we don't get hit with en- uh, enough of the unsilent taxes as it is, because there's certainly plenty of those that could put small businesses out of business. Uh, but with these regulations, you have to spend money in order to make sure you're compliant with all this stuff. It's not like it's free and you're going to know all these regulations that are on the books. You need to pay professionals to help you out with this stuff. Which means that a small business doesn't have the same scale that it, you know, to, to be able to accomplish that. And they're, therefore, they're the losers. We, we have seen that drastically. Yeah. You know, I think we, we should recognize the distinction between federal uh, intervention and state intervention. Uh, I understand in the, the latter's case, the term that is used is state has what is called police powers, uh, you know, far beyond uh, those powers that uh, uh, are identified in a constitution. Um, the federal government was formed. It was the second formation, if you will, after the Articles of Confederation. It was formed as a uh, basically almost like a treaty, if you will. Um, <clears throat> The idea was that it would it would continue, it would be sustainable. There was no time limit uh, on the treaty, but basically the idea was uh, the states would, if if anything, they would intervene, and at least the the citizens, if they didn't like the intervention uh, as created by their own representatives, uh, the people could uh, flee and go to another state, which had uh, less oppressive uh, uh, legislation. In the case of the federal government, we're talking about a, a fundamental principle here. Um, I think it was Montesquieu who had said that that uh, you cannot have a national government on the scale that we have, which is basically continental, uh, unless it be an empire run from the top. 
And uh, our founders said, no, 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 there is an exception. And this is where we, we split the, the uh, sovereignty, if you will, between the states and the federal government. And we give the federal government only these exceptional powers. The rest are enjoyed by the states. And so as we look at this, even though I think many of the, the, the concepts apply to both state and federal government, we should recognize that with the federal government, you're concentrating all of that power at the top and the, the, the whole strategy of the Constitution of 1787 was that that power be distributed, disseminated to the, the states and not be concentrated in the federal government. Oh, amen. And the, in the states, it gives you that opportunity to vote with your feet. And I used to live in Colorado. Actually, I spent a little over five years in Colorado while I was in graduate school and met my wife there and uh, loved Colorado for many reasons. But while I was there, we could see the Californication. That's what people said, don't Californicate Colorado, because they saw what was happening as those immigrants came from California with their socialist uh, mindset, and they were turning Colorado into something that the original residents couldn't even recognize. And so I did vote with my feet, and we moved to a much freer state, the state of Florida, uh, and subsequently from there to Maryland, though, actually yeah. going backwards then <laughs> to a more say, here, communist <laughs> state. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Colorado used to be a very liberty-loving state. And sadly, that, that has changed dramatically. And this, this uh, Colorado Commission, the Civil Rights Commission, illustrates how far uh, Colorado is from what it was uh, even just 20 years ago. Pastor Whitney, you're doing the, the world tour of socialist states. You got the, <laughs> New Jersey is where Jersey, it started. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Getting all the best, uh, the, the best of the worst. But it, it, sure, it certainly does give you uh, an exposure to what it would look like if you truly had liberty. And that's what our founders, I think, were, were fighting for. They recognize that when the government gets its fingers in its control on every part of your life, then you're... You lose your liberty. And one of the things that people I don't think recognize is that socialism is one evil, but the evil that everybody decries and says is just horrible is fascism. And what is fascism? It's big business and big government in bed together. Usually big government is on top of big business, but the two of them are colluding together in every way. And that's exactly what we see happening today. Big government, big business colluding together, whether it's, you know, in the tech platforms of uh, YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and all those things. But big government and big business have formed a fascist system against our liberties. And we hate the fascism just as much as we hate uh, the socialism. Well, you know, it's interesting that that uh, uh, that concept was baked into the cake almost, pardon the, the pun, um, it was baked into the cake almost from the beginning of, of the uh, Federal Republic. And um uh, the guy who was was most behind this was Alexander Hamilton. And the basic idea, we'll be getting into this in the future, but the basic idea was that rather than uh, disseminating power amongst the states and, and the people, what he wanted to do was to create the British system with you know some minor uh, differences here in the United States. He wanted to create a mercantilist system. He wanted to bind the, uh, uh, the banking and the commercial uh, interests of the, the state to the federal government. And as soon as he uh, was in position in Washington's uh, administration as the Secretary of the Treasury, he, he got right into this. I mean, he changed everything. 
uh, the basic idea that that he would not have fought during the ratification process of the Constitution. He did a flip-flop 180 degrees and said, oh, yeah, there are implied powers in the, the Constitution. And no such thing as implied powers. You know, if, if you look at, at uh, Hamilton's own words, uh, you know, they seem to contradict. He, uh, he contradicts himself. There were no implied powers, but unfortunately, he he uh, sold Washington on that. Washington was in a a position to veto uh, the National Bank and and a lot of the legislation that uh, Alexander Hamilton promoted, and that's where fascism began. And it's very interesting that this idea of binding uh, special interests to the state. Um, it's something that was picked up by Bismarck in Germany, and look at how that turned out. That's ultimately what produced Adolf Hitler. And while you can't, there's no disputing specific enumerated powers and uh, the difference between the state and federal government in that regard. How uh, blurred do you believe the lines have become over the years with the Commerce Clause being stretched the way it has? And, and you know, it's partially a product of of where we are today as a society, everything is involved somewhat in commerce, but it, I, I place the blame mostly on uh, the courts and allowing the Commerce Clause to be stretched as, as it has, and frankly, the legislature for putting out these laws in that fashion. Do you think that those lines have blurred significantly, Phil? Well, I think uh, they're no longer blurred, they're dissolved. Uh. Yeah, yeah, no question. No question. I, I can only think of a handful of cases where the courts have struck down laws that uh, they use the Commerce Clause as the basis of power. And even in some of those cases, Congress went back to the drawing board and, and figured out a way to make it work. With the Gun-Free School Zones Act, for example, uh, they're saying how gun violence affects commerce because if somebody goes to school and they got to live in fear, then they won't be able to have a profession the way they otherwise would have, and that affects commerce. Oh, uh, you know, wow. the, the court thankfully said that's too far removed, but instead what they did was they said, okay, well, you know, we're going to strict firearms in school zones, but it's only going to apply to firearms that were ever involved in interstate commerce. So that's practically all of them. Where'd you get that spring that they used to make this part on the gun? Oh, that came from a different state than it's interstate commerce. Wow. Yeah, uh, that convoluted. So I'm wondering, how can we recover liberty? I talk with folks who, who love liberty and they're trying things called private members association. That is, hey, we, we agree together and we contract together as a private members association. You are joining this association. You've agreed to, you know, our constitution, I guess, of the association. And in that private members association, we can have uh, exchanges that take place that are completely outside of the control of the bureaucrats, whether at the county level or the state level or the federal level, that say, wait a minute, if you're going to have a business contract, you got to do X, Y, and Z. And in a private members association, perhaps they're saying, no, we don't have to abide by any of that because we've contracted to step out of that system that is answerable to the county or to the, to the state or to the federal government. I don't know. What do you think about that idea? Well, my, my impression uh, in all of this is that the first battle that must be fought is the, the major battle. And that is the the battle over tax. Um, there's there's no question that if you're going to have government, that you're going to have taxes. Uh, but but certainly, uh, if you recognize the nature and the purpose of the uh, federation uh, and the the beauty of the taxation uh, in the Articles of Confederation, which 
held at the states would get a single uh, uh, bill for for services. And that's what the federal government was designed to be. It was designed to be a service, such as you know national defense and, and some very limited things. And so you would get a single bill. It would be up to the states to determine uh, what, uh, how they would uh, pay that, how they would tax their, their own citizens. But, uh, and if somebody, if, if a state did it unfairly, then again, people had the, the ability to uh, uh, fly to another state and set up shop. So basically, it comes down to taxation. And the reason taxation is so important is that, you know, we could, we could talk about uh, logic and we could talk about what's right and what's wrong and so forth, but money talks. And the reason the federal government is so powerful is that it has this immense store of 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 taxation taxation uh, revenue that it, that it can employ. And now you know it's not even good enough that they directly tax; they indirectly tax, probably as effectively by uh, inflating the money supply. So I mean, if we don't if we don't get the tax thing right, then uh, it seems to me that everything else is going to be a waste of time. Mike, have you heard of Private Members Association? Have no any knowledge about that? Not specifically. I will say that as a general idea, uh, I like it because uh, when you think about it, when you're giving your money to different uh, companies these days, you don't know how those dollars are going to be spent. Or perhaps you do, and you know that they're being spent towards interests that are contrary to your own, your values, and your beliefs, right? If, if you're going to pay somebody for a good or a service, and ultimately, that's going to be used to further an agenda that's contrary to your values. Then that, that's not that's not going to work out well in the end. So, if we know that you're on the same page with these people and your money is going towards uh, values that you agree with, then that's a great thing. Yeah, and uh, perhaps that's a path. I mean, perhaps we can create a path that would create a I guess you'd say a parallel economy that would be able to step out of all this kind of bureaucratic, well, the fascist system that wants to crush the small business and, and uh, prevent us from truly experiencing the liberty that our founders designed for us to have, to have the freedom of trade, the freedom of contract. Uh, that was a big part of what they were saying that King George III was violating uh, against them. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we uh, enjoy talking about these subjects and would love to have your feedback. My email is dwitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at theamericanview.com, all one word theamericanview.com. Join us next Friday morning, 8 a.m. We the people, the Constitution Matters on WFYL.